Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Blog Talk Radio. My name is Jim Burns, and right now you are in the Bullyproof Classroom. The number is 646-595-4965. Again, that number is 646-595-4965. We welcome your calls. Please check out our website at www.bullyproofclassroom.com. You're going to find a host of different things up there. And I certainly hope you take advantage of the resources that are on the site. You can do online professional development. You can purchase books. You can purchase e-books. You can subscribe to the Anti-Bullying Tip of the Day. That is the anti-bullying website that we use to help put an end to this bullying epidemic. Also, if you are listening, thank you very much. If you're not, tell a friend and tell them they can get this show on iTunes. And it will be available close to immediately right after the show. Uh, so, And they can download about 300 other episodes, if they like, uh, that are right there on iTunes. And you can get this show uh, and uh, learn how to put an end to this hideous epidemic that we face in our culture. Also... My new book, Anti-Bullying 101, now available uh, to purchase. If you are interested in purchasing this book, please email me at proactive7 at verizon.net. That's proactive7 at verizon.net. I don't even have it up on the website yet, but it's going to be there soon. If you want to get in on uh, some great anti-bullying tips and strategies. There's 101 of them there for you to choose from. So please take advantage of that. The new three R's is up on the website as an e-book, how to build respect, encourage responsibility, and strengthen relationships in a classroom, in a home, uh, or in your community. Now, normally we have an interview on Tuesday night. Uh, but tonight we're, we're not going to be doing an interview. We're going to be talking about something that I have written about, that I have spoken to my students about, uh, that I have actually been uh, probably studying for about the last uh, 15 years, and that's the educational models that we use uh, in schools. We use them in other places as well. We just don't know it. Uh, they're probably used in the home. They may be used in, in prison. They may be used in psychiatric facilities. But there are four of them. And I want to talk to you about them tonight because I I see them used so much. I see them misused and I see them overused. And if you'd like the transcript of what we're talking about tonight, you can go to bullyproofclassroom.com, and it's the lead article that's there right now. If you were to pick up a textbook on 
any educational methodology, and I mean a college textbook, and you took a look through it, you would find in that book models that have been used for years, and I mean for years. These models are in textbooks today. They were in textbooks years ago. They're in. They're all over the place. They are the common. These models are the common philosophies that have come down through our educational system in the last forty years. Um, in the past, you know, the, the, these models were. You know, they were proven to help educators deal with student academic and behavioral problems and were an intervention process when students struggled with their behavior or their social problems or emotional problems or other conduct issues. And they've been successful. I'm not going to question whether or not they've been successful. But as we have moved through the generations, some of these models suffer from what I call overuse injury. And the reason that they're suffering, the reason that we're having the problems that we're having right now is that the models haven't changed, but student behavior has. And sometimes these models are used now more as a crutch than an intervention and do very little to help educators deal with chronic behavioral issues in their school. In other words, they're there, we use them, they're not doing anything, but the bottom line is we continue to use them. And I think everybody understands the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Now, behaviors such as disrespect, irresponsibility, bullying, violence, power struggles, lack of motivation, sometimes clinical issues such as dis disrespect and irresponsibility, bullying, uh, and, and issues that are clinical, uh, such as depression and attention deficit disorder, are all problems that educators faced many years ago. And this is a big but. The intensity and frequency of these behaviors have become now the norm and not the exception. And we have to take a look at this for a minute. Uh, we really do. Let me make something clear. An intervention is not an intervention if it doesn't do the job. An intervention is, it, is only an intervention if student behavior changes. Using an intervention, using an intervention that students are immune to are only ceremonious. And they allow educators to say that something is being done, whether it works or not. In other words, what have you tried with this kid? Well, I've tried this, and I've tried that, and, you know, I've done a whole host of different things. Now, that whole host of different things is falls in the, into the category of one of these models. 
all of the models had their advantages many years ago. But now they suffer from what I call the overuse injury and may only work in very controlled environments such as prison or an inpatient psychiatric unit. Now I'm going to spell out to you how these models were used and are used now. And I'm going to help you get a better understanding of how intergenerationally students have adapted. They've adapted. They've learned how to play the game. And they and these interventions are no they no longer net the same result that they did in the past. Now I'm sure you're curious as to what these models are. Well, I'm going to share them with you. My name is Jim Burns. Right now you're in the Bullyproof Classroom. The number to call in six four six five nine five four nine six five. Again that number six four six five nine five. Four nine six five. First model is the organic or biological model. I have high blood pressure, and at times our bodies can suffer from organic imperfections, and they can cause many things. In my case, high blood pressure. In somebody else's case, it may be cancer, a stroke or other diseases that can be treated with medication or other medical interventions. And to be honest with you, without my medication, I might be dead right now. The medications are designed to help keep a person alive. Wonders and the evolution of medicine have increased our lifespan by more than 15 years since the 1940s. People live till they're 80 years old now, 90 years old. And this medication is a necessary commodity if a person wants to maintain a quality of life. Now, before someone takes medication, they have a blood test or some other test that reveals the cause of certain symptoms that prompts the doctor to place the patient to treat whatever condition they have that will relieve the symptoms that are related to the condition. Kids who are behavioral problems have too often been treated with Ritalin or other psychotropic drugs as a means of controlling out-of-control behavior. And that's not a problem. That's not a problem. The problem is all too often the drugs are used as the first resort, not the last. Now, <clears throat> I worked as, the, as a principal of a high school. I did. Spent a lot of time dealing with the uh, you know, uh, behavior problems that were just out of control. Uh, and I have made many phone calls to many parents about a, a child's unruly behavior. And, you know, sometimes I was told that the child didn't take his pill that day or 
they didn't have a chance to get to the doctor or the pharmacy to refill the prescription. It's not whether or not to medicate a child. Rather, the debate is what the medication does to the child and is the medication the only answer. Now, those that are in the mental health industry are going to tell you that therapy, along with medication, nets the best result when dealing with a client. And it would seem apparent to me that medication, along with fair, firm, and consistent discipline, that is balanced with rules and compassion, would net the best result in education as well. All discipline has to have a balance of rules and regulations and compassion and understanding. In that order. See, the problem, folks, is we talk too much. When a kid acts up, we go to him and we say, what's wrong today? You're just not yourself. What's going on? You know, is something happening at home? You need to talk about something? We go through this huge litany. When in reality... None of the behaviors that he exhibits matters because at that point he needs to be disciplined for his inappropriate behavior, ADHD or not. But once we impose the discipline, once the kid faces the consequences, then we can go and add the compassion and understanding. We can have conversations with the kid. See, oftentimes when we talk to a kid, when he's unruly, we're, we're, we're trying to soften him up so that we can impose the consequence. But let me ask you something. What happens when you talk to a kid and you impose the consequence and he flips? What do you do then? You've already talked to him for 10 minutes. Talk less, discipline more. I talk about this in the new three R's in education. You need to get the book. Now, sometimes parents and teachers are looking for a quick fix. I mean, you know, I have high blood pressure. I take, but I do take responsibility for my health by walking and eating right and watching my weight. Now, along with the medication, that helps lower my blood pressure. Students need to take responsibility for their behavior through the imposition of consequences. If, in fact, we don't balance it with rules and regulations, compassion and understanding, and medication if necessary, the only thing we, that teachers or educators or parents can expect is temporary relief, not permanent help. Sometimes parents who discover that their son or daughter Tension deficit disorder, <clears throat> excuse me, or they're, they're relieved to find it out because they then can transfer the burden of responsibility to the school, who they will claim doesn't understand their child's condition, and by the way, can very easily convert the reason for the child's unruly behavior to an excuse. Yeah, he's got, he has a condition, so now we have to excuse the behavior. Once we use an excuse, the behavioral problems escalate, and believe it or not, by default, 
unwittingly agree with the behavior because it hides behind the condition. In reality, it may not be a condition at all. It might be a learned behavior. We have got to pay attention to this. This is something that needs our close attention. Because if we don't, if we don't, we will rely too heavily on this model, on the organic and biological model, using it as the quick fix and throwing our hands in the air when kids act up even when they're medicated. Now, this model can also at times cause educators to lower their expectation for student behavior as well. You know, as, as a teacher, I would meet parents at conferences and only to discover that the parent in their own way had the same personality characteristics as their child. And once I found this out, it would send me running into the faculty room crying out, you know, I know why Joe is the way he is. I just met his father or mother. And they're as weird as he is. Now, I will admit that once this happened, I saw no hope and began to lower my expectation for the student. I lowered my expectation for the student. Genetics, what gets passed down through the DNA molecules and chromosomal structures can only influence student behavior. They don't determine it. A person can always change their response to the influence, the influence being poor genetics. We can change our response to that influence. And that's something that we have to make kids aware of. Because if we allow them to get away with things behind genetics or what we think is genetics, what will happen is they develop that private logic that says, I have a condition and my behavior should be excused. Believe me, students need to be taught how to rise above any genetic imperfection, and this can only happen when we increase expectations. When we lower them, the student will only get the idea that they're incapable of not behaving in a manner that's acceptable to a family, a school, or society in general. My name is Jim Burns. Right now you are in the Bullyproof Classroom. The number is 646-595-4965. Again, that number is 646-595-4965. Now the next model. The next model is the behavioral model. Students and even adults contemplate their actions based upon two very important outcomes. What am I going to gain and what am I going to lose? I mean, we do it all the time. If you work an hourly job and you're tired in the morning, the loss of that salary or, or your hourly wage when you go into work because you didn't go into work is too much of a loss because you have a bad habit, you like to eat. 
and you have to make money in order to eat. Now, if the loss is great enough, risk might be too high. The risk is at a minimum. They may jump in feet first. If the consequence from the loss is too great, they may evaluate taking that risk again. See, students and even some adults are in a constant state of evaluation. And they always ask themselves these questions when they're thinking about doing something that could result in some uncomfortable consequences. Now, for students that are always involved in some type of misconduct, educators use a behavioral uh, approach and place the student on a behavioral modification program. In other words, they receive a reward for acting and behaving in appropriate ways as opposed to exhibiting poor judgment. Let me read that again. In other words, they receive a reward for acting and behaving in appropriate ways as opposed to exhibiting poor judgment. Hmm. If I understand this correctly, students are rewarded when they change their behavior, which makes sense. In other words, the consequence was uncomfortable enough and they changed their behavior. But what about the students who exhibit positive behavior all the time? Where's their reward? To the students who are always on the right track, it would be to their advantage to act up and then change their behavior once they receive the reward. You see, behavior modification does work, but it's very extrinsic. Students can't maintain their positive behavior once their rewards stop coming. Many years ago, students were rewarded for going above and beyond behavioral expectations of either their parents or the teacher. Now they're rewarded for what they should be doing anyway, such as staying in their seat or being on time for school. Now, because of the overuse injury that this model has sustained, kids look to be rewarded for anything and everything. And they start to feel good about themselves for no apparent reason. It's a temporary fix, and once the novelty of the reward wears off, the behavior continues. The same is true with the use of praise. A student could exhibit positive behavior for a day or two, and the teacher falls all over the child with an avalanche of positive comments that do nothing more then put pressure on the student to continue to live up to the expectation that he or she is incapable of. If you give praise too frequently, it becomes like white noise in the mind of the child. Times don't even believe the comments themselves. You know, just as an aside, you know, the stakes are much higher today. And in families, you know, with kids in the home, they're given such high-end items for doing something that 
in years past would have been viewed as daily household chores. Kids get rewarded with huge items today with all of the cell phones and other devices that kids want. Sometimes they get taken on vacation during the Christmas holiday because their behavior was... I've seen situations where principal of a school withheld the um, the class trip at the end of the year for some 8th grade students. But it happened so early in the year, he had to give them a chance to earn it back. Because he knew that their behavior would be out of control because they had nothing to lose. Now back to praise. It needs to be given on a 1 to 9 ratio. For every one correction, there needs to be nine statements of praise doled out. With 10 months in the school year, that should be one solid comment of praise a month. And in between, educators need to strengthen their relationship with their students by practicing the 2 by 10. Two minutes a day for 10 days straight. A conversation needs to take place with the student that is the most unlikable and unruly. We have a responsibility to build relationships with kids that we don't like and don't deny it. There are kids that we don't like. The idea that I like you but don't like your behavior is baloney. Because if an adult did some of the stuff to us that kids do or said something that 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 a kid said to us, we'd walk away from them. We wouldn't like them. But we have a responsibility to build a relationship with that kid that's unlikable. And the kids know that we don't like them. They only have to look at our body posture. And when we have this conversation with the students, it'll strengthen the bond between them, between us and the students. And by the eighth day, the students will be looking to us for the conversation. This breeds respect, and without it, no amount of praise will change student behavior. My name is Jim Burns. Right now you are in the Bullyproof Classroom. The number is 646-595-4965. Again, that number is 646-595-4965. The next model. The environmental model, I used it all the time. I was a special ed teacher. I worked with kids who were emotionally disturbed. My students needed to work at desks that were had blinders on them. They were called carols. They, were, they used headphones. They were given individual instructions, and with kids who were real behavior problems, the kids were spread out all over the room to avoid verbal confrontations. This model worked. It was fine. It was easy to do. Keep the kids buried in a carol so that they can do their work without distractions. Give them headphones so that they can do individualized instruction. Spread them out around the room and work with one kid at a time. But by today's standard, <clears throat> this model has taken on a whole different meaning. Parents request that their child's schedule be changed. 
because they're not getting along with the teacher or other students in the class. Students are now given individual personal aids to monitor them because their behavior is so out of control. Individual aids. One person working with one kid. You ever wonder why the educational budget is so high in some school districts? Take a look at it and try to determine how many individual aides are there working with individual kids. Kids, I might add, who in years past probably should have gone out of district for their behavior. And when you add up the number of individual aides that you have and the number of kids that go out of it, you're going to find that the cost is far greater in terms of salary for some of the folks who are individual aides than it would be for sending a kid out of district. If a person is on salary working as an individual aide, they have to get benefits. They pay into the pension. They do all of the things. They get all of the benefits at a much lower rate than teachers get and they're working with one kid. No Child Left Behind standards now have teachers preparing individual lessons for many students in the room, and at times there's two or three teachers in the room to aid with the instruction. And I've seen it. I mean, you have two or three aides in the room, maybe you've got a class of 20 kids, uh, one day, uh, six kids are out. You basically have one-on-three instruction. The environment's been modified to a point where we place more emphasis on the 20% of the students with difficulty rather than the 80% who want and deserve a quality education. Now, this model suffers from severe overuse injury and is no longer used in education for what it was intended for. And let's look at it realistically, folks. In reality, environments are not modified for students, for adults in the work environment. I mean, if, if an individual has a disability and needs modification to perform their job, I mean, they're protected under the law. But no employer is going to modify an environment due to an individual's poor social skills or lack of motivation. And a person with this type of profile will provide all the evidence that will support the employer's belief, and they most times will be terminated. The environmental model needs to be used as an intervention to improve student performance, not to offer a way out, poor behavior, or social inadequacies. And then we come the last model. And the last model is, I'm not quite sure exactly what it was intended to do. I know what the model means, but I see what it's, it's doing right now. That model is the psychoeducational model. <clears throat> and let me just touch on one thing here. You have 
two very different paradigms at work in a school. One is a student acts up, he needs to be held accountable. The next one is a student acts up and we have to get him some help, call a behaviorist, send him to the social worker, send him somewhere other than the vice principal because this youngster has a condition. He may not have a condition, and I've said it before, he may have a learned behavior. Now, when a kid acts up, and I shared this already, what what, what are some of the factors that we have to consider? Now, as educators, we may consider this. Parents are going through a messy divorce, alcoholism in the family. Student broke up with his or her boyfriend or girlfriend. Low IQ. Or maybe they didn't make the sports team. Which factors do we need to consider? The truth is we don't need to consider any of them. This is, of course, if you're the teacher. Say, If you're the teacher, you don't have to consider one thing. You are involved with discipline. Schools today, kids don't necessarily go to the vice principal because they are behavior problems, because they may have a condition. So they may use a social worker, behaviorist, or school psychologist, and they would consider all of them. And do I love social workers, school psychologists, and uh, behaviorists, of course I do. And they do a wonderful job in schools. They would consider all of the factors just listed, and therein lies the problem. Teachers and support staff, like the ones mentioned, never have and never will get along professionally in a school environment. Why? Because teachers see consequences for inappropriate behavior, and social workers and others seek reasons. This model has been grossly overused and has suffered injury due to the fact that accountability for poor behavior has taken a back seat behind the guise of reasons which, again, have become excuses. Now, this model worked well when teachers, again, balanced their rules and regulations with compassion and understanding. And that's when the teachers did it all and offered a real understanding ear after the student was disciplined. The minute that two people enter the discipline process, a bad marriage begins to form with two very different philosophies being used. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Students know how to play the game. They know how to play the game. They know this. And just like parenting, when mom says no, go ask dad. When the teacher's viewed as unfair, enter the mental health professional to soothe the soul that feels maltreated. 
and some kids need therapy and should receive it. But it needs to be balanced with an environment that offers real-world consequences. There's no doubt that this model has been misused, none whatsoever. You know, the, psych- the, the, the real principle is that the psychoeducational model of the psychoeducational model is that education has a role in emotional and behavioral change. In other words, if you're aware of what the hell is wrong with you, you can take the steps that are necessary to make the change. And the rationale is with this model, the psychoeducational approach, is that with clear understanding of, the, of your condition or the, uh, the condition of a student and self-knowledge of your strengths, community resources, and coping skills contribute to their own emotional well-being. That's what the model is designed to do. It is designed to educate a person regarding their behavior or their condition and help them to take the steps on their own. Again, accountability. This is how the model was designed. And once there is improved awareness of the cause and effect, it leads to better self-efficacy, which is the person believes that they're able to manage a situation. And this improved self-efficacy leads to better self-control. And that's what we're after in school. In other words, the person feels less helpless about the situation and more in control of him or herself. This model, if you use it right, can make a difference in the lives of students and parents as long as in the process of of disciplining students, educators and mental health professionals together in understanding a student's diagnosis and use that diagnosis to educate and improve student accountability and they don't excuse unruly behavior behind a condition. Those are your four models that we use, that are used in education today, four of them. Now, ask yourself this question. How much time do I spend using one of these models? How much time do I spend complaining and asking and maybe even recommending that a student goes on medication? As a parent, are you happy when you find out that your student or your child has a condition because it lets you off the hook? Are you? Let me explain something to you. It's not whether or not a kid needs medication. It is you. It is the parent. It is the inability to, of of some parents to discipline that leads to the private logic that develops in a kid's mind causing him to misbehave. 
It's the private. It's the decision that they make because there weren't consistent consequences imposed. Understand something. The social and emotional window to the brain closes at the age of five, which means anything that the child, any conclusion that the child um, came to based upon who they are, what they are, what they can get away with, what they can do, is in there. Now it's in there, and it's only seeds at that point but as they grow older, it, those seeds grow into a redwood tree. And then you have to break the glass to go in and get it. And that's known as therapy. But how much time do you spend blaming the school? How much time does the school spend trying to deal with behavior and asking that students be placed on medication? Medication is not... A, is not The answer, medication is something that kids need with the balance of rules and regulations and compassion and understanding. Ask yourself this question if you're a parent or a teacher. How much time do I spend rewarding kids for performing or doing things that they should be doing anyway? How much time? How much time do I spend begging for certain behaviors and then, and this is as a parent or a teacher, and then bribing a kid, bribing them to get them to do what you want them to do with a reward? Hmm? How much time do you spend doing that? As a teacher in a classroom, how much time do you spend with those 20%? And how much time do you spend ignoring good behavior because kids who who behave in an appropriate way are watching and they're wondering when their turn is coming, when they're going to get recognized for what they're doing that's right. As a parent or a teacher, how much time do you spend trying to modify the environment of your child in the home or in school? How much time as a parent do you spend trying to get the school to change your kid's schedule? How much time do you spend telling the school that your child is not getting along with someone else or not getting along with the teacher? If they're not getting along with the teacher, tough. They have to learn how to get along with the teacher. School is a microcosm of society. That teacher represents an employer. And if someone has trouble on the job and they're not getting along with their boss, what are they going to do? Quit? To learn. We have to teach kids and our students how to be able to accept correction and deal with the person who is in charge. We have to teach them how to cooperate even though they disagree. We have to teach them that it's okay to disagree with the right attitude. These are things that get taught to young kids and they need to be and, and unfortunately 
we're in a position right now where we have to teach them to older kids, and sometimes we have to teach them to adults. Try to get a parent to cooperate even though they disagree. They'll run to the superintendent or to the school board. People have to learn how to work within a system. The environmental model will modify an entire system to meet the needs of one person. And that isn't the way life works. It wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to create a more friendly learning environment for students. Now, as a parent or a teacher, ask yourself this. Are kids in school as as a parent? Does your kid know how to put you and your husband or your wife at odds with each other? Do they? I mean, I know kids always want to play one off the other, but how much time do they spend really trying to make sure that they get what they want and mom and dad fight over it? In school, as a teacher, how much time do you spend trying to work out a good behavioral plan for a kid that includes some form of possible education about their condition so that they can become more successful as adults? Or do we rely on the behaviorist, the social worker, the psychologist, and ignore the consequences that need to be imposed? See, once a kid is seen by a psychologist, social worker, or whatever the case may be, that person is not the one that is required to dole out the consequence. That person needs to go to the vice principal after the therapy. He may need to go to the vice principal before seeing a psychologist or a behaviorist. There would be your rules and regulations, your compassion and understanding. We've got to ask ourselves a lot of questions regarding these two models, these four models. It is critical for us to gain an understanding of the models and the misuse and the overuse that they are suffering from right now if we are going to be successful in working with our kids and our students. And lastly, a relationship will always in behavior. Kids don't listen to what they don't respect. And if you see a kid with his head down and doing no work, I will say this to you, and I've said it before, the manifestation of disrespect is laziness. But don't be fooled. It's not that the kid won't do his work. He just won't do it for you. It's not that he won't take out the garbage. He won't take it out for you because respect is not present. My name is Jim Burns. You have been in the Bullyproof Classroom. The number is 646-595-4965. Again, that number is 646-595-4965. This show will be on iTunes within a few hours of it being posted. If you're listening, great. If not, tell your friend. If not, you know, um, well, then you're not hearing this, but 
If you're listening, tell a friend who isn't listening to get this thing, get this show on iTunes. Please go to our website, www.bullyproofclassroom.com. Check out all the resources. Buy something that helps support our cause. Anti-Bullying 101, now out, ready to go. You want to order a copy, email me. Right off the presses, proactive7 at verizon.net, you'll get it. I'll have it sent to you. You could pay using PayPal or my address. Just email me and I'll give you all that information. We are in the holiday season right now. And this is the time of year where sometimes we become laxed in our efforts because we just feel too good. Do me a favor, don't feel too good because some of the kids that we have in front of us in our classroom are feeling just that lousy. As good as we feel, they feel that lousy. And it's nice to share what you're doing for the holidays, but understand that some of our kids don't have that opportunity to do some of the nice things that we do. And we could, when we should be thankful to God that we have all of the things that we have. Some kids don't have what we have. So I ask you to be sensitive to the students that are in front of you and make sure that you don't talk too much about the joy and happiness that you have. Because a kid who has a behavior problem will figure out a way to make sure you have a lousy day based upon your joy. Try to bring joy to your students somehow and give what you can and help them and do things that will help improve their behavior and give them the hope that they need that they'll be able to move forward in life as a, and, and experience the lifelong success that they're going to need in order to survive in this ever-changing world that is becoming much more difficult to manage. My name is Jim Burns. You've just been in the Bullyproof Classroom. I'm going to be back at you next week at this time, maybe with an interview, maybe not. I haven't posted the show yet. Please get the anti-bullying tip of the day or the tip of the week. I, I, every Monday you can get it. It, it, it's on iTunes, or you can come to this website, blogtalkradio.com, slash, slash bullyproof classroom, and you can get it there. It's only a three- or four-minute tip, but I know it'll help you. I hope you all have a great week. I hope you all have a wonderful thank- had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I will be seeing you next week. <laughs>